I didn't know what I was going to get when I sent this email out to a bunch of philosophers just asking, has philosophy ever helped them or guided them or done any good? Um, And I asked the question because I was personally having a bit of a crisis. Um, And what's come back are five stories, five stories that I have to share with you guys. Um, And this first one, um, is from a man named Ben Van Loon. Now, ben, when Ben Van Loon emailed me, he described himself as a recovering existentialist. And we're going to discuss what he means by that later on in the episode, so I won't spoil it now. But what I should tell you now is what we're going to cover. And what we're going to cover is how Ben Van Loon started as a um, as an English and philosophy double major who graduated into one of the biggest economic crises that I can think of with my um, limited knowledge of the subject and has ended up as the communications director of an international firm um, as well as a professor, as well as a writer, as well as a editor of journals and it's really cool and I hope you enjoy I should also mention that it was in my discussion with Ben that the title of this series came. So, welcome to Escaping the Ivory Tower. Right. Um, Ben, could you introduce yourself to us um, and give us a bit of a backstory? What do you do? Sure. So first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I, it's, it's nice to be talking with you. It's too bad we can't talk closer in geographical proximity, but um, that's part of the reason why we're talking, I guess. So I'm Ben Van Loon, um, based in Chicago, and I do a few things actually by day. I like to say I'm the communications director for an international real estate investing association. Um, And by night, I'm an adjunct professor of communications at Northeastern Illinois University. And in between all of that, I do a whole bunch of other things. I write and I edit and I do some consulting and I ride a bike and um, and maybe I don't go much many places these days either because of uh, all the pandemic fun that everybody is having, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a hoot. Let yeah. me tell you. <laughs> yeah, in um in Chicago is it um is it dark? Does it get really really dark um in the winter? We're we're I think we're coming out of the other side of it. So maybe one thing you and I both have in common is sharing the same general latitude on the globe. Mm. Um and I think maybe right now we might be looking the same um when it's when it's March in Chicago it's hard to feel hopeful about anything <laughs> even without a pandemic happening the lack of light um the the kind of persistent overcastness mm. um it's it's pretty draining um and maybe it doesn't help that i have like gray walls in my apartment too but that's a problem for another day yeah my my partner bought a sad lamp this winter because it was the first time that he'd ever actually experienced the dark and he was like this is terrible why do you live here but Anyway, yeah, I've always I've always been kind of like uh, when, whenever it comes to kind of depression and seasonal depression, I've always I, I feel like I've never fully resolved the chicken and egg situation. Depression. Is it neurochemistry affecting outlook or is it outlook affecting neurochemistry? Um, and maybe the older I've gotten, the more I've been kind of been able to point to specific environmental factor factors that affect your mood. I used to kind of maybe trying to make the best of a, a bad weather situation in Chicago that extends over four or five months. I always try to, I used to try and say like, oh, well, this is just part of becoming more resilient as a person. But um, maybe there's something about the sun that we're all kind of forgetting this far north on the planet. So when, when the sun is out, all of a sudden my view on life is a lot cheerier. It's crazy how that happens. 
I actually saw somebody posted the best thing about springtime is that you realize that you've been de depressed for three months and you've just forgotten and then you get to springtime you're like oh my god I'm happy wow yeah maybe we just like maybe that's the advantage of living farther north away from the equator is you are able to appreciate the sun more mm -hmm. or maybe like appreciate those moods more if you just have constant perfect weather all the time then you can't really call it perfect weather because there's nothing to compare it to it's so just almost like monsoon season versus just normal uh, <laughs> perfect equatorial weather mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you 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 appreciate the things that you can't have all the time like yeah. like cake um <laughs> Right. Okay. So you do all of this, but you mm -hmm. started out as an English and philosophy double major. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. So here's, here's the story. And, and, and it's a story that's still being told, I think. Um, so Ben didn't think that he was going to go to university. Which was kind of very against any kind of institutional anything at the time and had these um kind of self-proclaimed punk rock anarchist tendencies and but simply because he was into it he found that he was reading a lot of philosophy so after a couple of years he decided to enroll and uh, eventually chose to double major because uh, the problem i noticed in philosophy was that a lot of philosophers couldn't write and the problem I noticed on the kind of English and literature and creative writing side of things was a lot of that world didn't seem to want to tackle tough questions head on. So Ben set to work bridging these two things in his own mind. So finished school in 2009 with these two degrees and all these kind of great academic accomplishments and then faced the real world, which frankly, didn't give a shit about what I had just done for the past three or four years. So. Ben started working in a bike shop. And as he was working there, he wrote about his experiences and what he was seeing. He started getting published and paid for the stuff he was writing. He got himself an office job at a non-profit. Um, the, the official title I had was Floater Number Three. And I just really? hated the kind of scatological like job designation there of being a floater. That's a That's, terrible it, name. Yeah, it was really kind of insulting, but, I, but it came with health insurance, so. <laughs> Though not ideal, from here to further himself, Ben and his brother started a literary publishing brand where he could publish his own work and provide a platform for other artists around Chicago. This is when he started to become interested in the commercial, businessy side of writing. In it, he found creativity and he enjoyed the philosophical questions the business world could strike up. However... Already at that point, I was feeling, I was looking back at my teenage self and thinking, this guy must think that Ben in his early 20s is starting to sell out. Mm. Um, whatever, whatever that means. Um, it, I guess the idea of selling out is much more clear to somebody who's 18 years old. But, but anyway, my 18-year-old self would have thought I was selling out. But really, what attracted me to the idea of marketing and kind of moving beyond just the writing and production side of things was I want to be on the side of business and in the area of the world that doesn't just say things, but actually gets to be involved in deciding what gets said, how it gets said why it gets said when it gets said that's the kind of marketing and communication side of the writing business that has since come to attract me and that i have since kind of built my career around so i got the mm -hmm. marketing job and saw oh there's there's a lot more i can do here marketing is still just part of the picture there's this kind of worship of of numbers and data in marketing and it's really to the exclusion of the core ideas that underscore what a brand or a company or a person is doing so i that's now four or five years out of undergraduate at this point. That's when I made the decision to go back to school and get a master's degree in communications. Right. Um, and part of the attraction to communications was I was already working in this world. Um, so it was in a kind of easy sell professionally. The other aspect of attraction to communications was 
especially with my philosophical kind of background that I was still dabbling in and I was still mm -hmm. doing some philosophical writing and criticism and that academic side of stuff. I knew that you can make communications apply to anything. And so I picked communications not because I had this kind of singular passion for communications, but because I saw it as a way to make my kind of philosophical interests more applicable in a larger variety of contexts. Because communications is, again, thinking about what gets said and how it gets said and when and why. That's what philosophy is too, I think. So, mm -hmm. so communications, can you like paint a picture of what that looks like day to day? What do you do in communications? I'll, I'll talk about it with a few examples. Um, okay. Because it's, it's, it's not a profession. I think it's a, a point of view. So first of all, I did like kind of wrote PR stuff, writing press releases and pitching news stories and that kind of thing, um, which you can do just as easily without any kind of philosophical training. But the one of the things that I really liked doing there was if we had a kind of, so the, the firm focused on reputation management, which is, if you look at the history of public relations, that's really what PR is, is managing the kind of public perception of ideas or organizations or people, managing their reputations. Mm -hmm. um, some firms specialize in crisis situations, some firms specialize in, in marketing consumer products, um, but we were working with a smaller set of clients on overall kind of reputation management. So that meant if a crisis popped up or there was some kind of executive transition that would be sensitive, it was up to us at the firm to write the correct kind of messages and guide the spokespeople in the right direction. And what, what can we say? What, what should we say? What are the questions that we can expect? What are the difficult and unfair questions that we should expect? And what are the things that we should kind of have prepared in response to these? And also what's the main story that we want to tell here or the main idea we want to tell? So we, we got involved in some pretty complex issues that I had no previous experience in. And, um, for example, early childhood education and something called a social impact bond that can be used to fund early childhood education. I knew nothing about early childhood education or social impact bonds, which are just kind of a tax tool for rich people. But um, when I was working at the PR firm, that's not what I said. That's just kind of <laughs> what I learned. But, but in any case, we had to kind of, our client was uh, kind of serious about these programs and, and um, convinced that the, these bonds were kind of a good way to get private funding for public programs. Um, and so we had to kind of work do a lot of research and write a lot of messaging and plan for a lot of kind of contingencies for interviews. And if so-and-so asks this kind of question, what should the response be? And, and, and also how do we tell the truth here, which is kind of PR maxim 101 is always tell the truth um, or else you'll be found out if you don't, and you mm -hmm. could destroy somebody's reputation by doing that. Maybe not, in 2020 and 2021, you see people lying constantly and mm. becoming, um, getting elected president, for example. Um, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah, but, but, <laughs> but that, that behavior still doesn't really fly for corporations. Um, so that's one thing a communications person might do is get involved on the PR side. And, and really what it comes down to is thinking strategically. Um, about what gets said and why and what kind of support you might need if you want to say something. And if you look at the entire kind of skills tree of what people get employed for in the world of professional communications, always at the top, um, beyond social media skills, beyond um, business and financial literacy, the number one thing is always strategic communications, critical thinking, the ability to strategize. And I, I think that is where I've been able to see the kind of philosophical training 
come into, that's where that training meets, I think, practical and economic reality. I might not be dealing in ideas in a business context that have to do with answering life's fundamental questions about why there's something instead of nothing and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's also not the right forum for those kind of questions, but there's still difficult Mm -hmm. questions to ask and difficult kind of ethics to consider, um, especially in public relations. So I think that's why I've gained more of a passion for it over the past few years, clearly, because now I'm teaching public relations and Mm -hmm. um, doing this kind of strategic communications work on a global scale. Yeah, so it sounds very much like an applied philosophy. Like, so, I mean, a lot of the time when we study philosophy, it's like, why are we here? And why do humans do bad things? And how should we be good? But also, on on a a small scale, that's basically what you're asking. It's like, how am I going to be good in this situation? Or do right in this situation? Yeah, one one of the things I'm doing right now, um, and this is still answering your um, earlier question about what does communications look like. So this international association that I work for, it's a small, but uh, I would say really influential group of investors and institutions. And um, the mission at the uh, association is to help our members become better investors, better leaders, and better global citizens. So there's already kind of a ethical imperative contained in that mission to become better. And one of the projects that we started last year and that we're going to be growing a lot this year is really kind of building in a code of ethics for this industry. Some real, some investors have codes of ethics for how they should behave within their professional communities or associations. Um, but there's not really kind of a code of ethics for, okay, if I'm an investor, um, or a real estate holder or owner or manager, what's my responsibility to the world, to my peers, to other people, to the people that use my buildings? So um, now I'm, I'm getting to work with a lot of our member leaders on writing out these and thinking through the, what ethics means in our, in our context for our for our association, which is global and kind of different countries have different ethical standards in some places. Bribery is more a matter of course for getting business done, whereas Mm -hmm. in others it's frowned upon, um, maybe rightfully so. But in any case, you can't kind of say in a blanket way, bribery is no. You need some kind of framework in order to understand what decisions to make in those cases. So we've really framed or we're trying to frame the ethics, the, the idea of ethics in this group as a dialogue, as a conversation. It's not, not about writing kind of a gospel of ethics and saying this is how it is, but it's more we arrive at ethical ideas when we talk about them and when we engage with them and when we kind of play them out in real time and don't deal in hypotheticals. And we can maybe use past precedents to make decisions, but each situation presents its own unique case and its own unique solution. So what does it mean to be better in these kind of complex and rare or really unique business situations? But even framing the idea of ethics in this way mm-hmm. um, at a conversation is, it's bringing kind of a specific philosophical idea to how an ethics conversation should be had. And it shows my training, I guess, or my, my education, which started in ancient philosophy and um, the works of Plato and other kind of Plato contemporaries, <laughs> um, which was all kind of based on dialogue. Mm. Um, if I would have maybe had a different kind of philosophical upbringing, that might not be the, the view I get to bring now as communications director for the association, as the editor-in-chief of our journal, and as somebody really involved with the work that our ethics committee is doing. But it's also, it's fun because now I I get to name drop um, all these kind of philosophers that I've had to be quiet about 
for the sake of <laughs> not, not appearing snobbish to people. So mm. now, now it's safe to talk about in a professional context. So it's pretty fun. And it's still communications. It's still communications and it's still philosophy as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it sounds fascinating because part of the... I've been speaking to several people about this, obviously, but part of their frustration with philosophy is you tend to be a very eloquent spectator, but you don't actually get to play the sport. And when you were talking about your sort of journey, it very much sounds like you made a decision where you were like, don't want to be a spectator anymore. I want to go and play the game. And that's yeah. what I'm going to go and do. Um, but with all the eloquence and the sort of um, background that the spectator has. Yeah. And I, I think it's great that you bring that up. Um, and, and I like that idea of spectatorship in philosophy. A lot of academic philosophy falls prey to the same traps of other humanities disciplines where you become more advanced in the field, the better you are at mastering the technical vocabulary of that discipline. But mm. the more you master that vocabulary, the more divorced you get from um, life at street level, I like to say. Yeah. Um, nobody cares if you have read or can explain Hegel to them um, when you're <laughs> picking up your coffee or something. But if there's somebody outside who is asking for money, that's when philosophy is coming into practice. And that's when your kind of ethical ideas come into practice. And that's really where philosophy happens, I think. And just a, one other note on the connection between philosophy and communications and this idea of spectatorship, mm -hmm. especially when you're kind of on the PR side or the strategic side of business um, and you're working in the world of communications. And I say the strategic side as compared to like the, the marketing side or the kind of measurement side of things. I'm more focused on the strategic side of things. You have to be able to put yourself in into the eyes and hearts of multiple different audiences. Um, especially if you're doing PR, you have to plan for unfair questions, unfair situations, uh, unreceptive audiences. So the only way to get into the heads of these semi-fictitious amalgamations is to view things from their perspective. And I think that's the other thing that philosophy lends itself to in communications is the ability to think through a single issue from multiple different points of view. So it's, it's taking that kind of those spectator tendencies, but putting them to work under a larger umbrella of, um, of action. Mm. So I loved when you um, emailed me, when I asked a question like, does philosophy help anybody? Like, does anybody have um, a story about that? Um, and you refer to yourself as a um, recovering existentialist, which yeah. is such a good phrase. I really like <laughs> it. And so what, what we kind of got at the moment is we've got a picture of how philosophy lends itself to you in the workplace, how you've mm -hmm. turned it from something that sits in the ivory tower into something that you have utilized and have found utility for in the real world. Mm -hmm. When you were coming out of uni, no jobs, nobody gives a crap that you've done philosophy mm. in English and done very well at it. Did your philosophical training and did any of your readings help you emotionally through that time? Because it must have been terrifying. Yeah, um, that's a great question. And that's why I refer, that's why I, I like to refer to myself as a recovering existentialist because, and maybe this goes all the way back to talking about the weather in Chicago in March. Um, where it's really miserable. And if I had all the money in the world, I would spend the miserable months somewhere less miserable. <laughs> um, but because I don't have that freedom, mm -hmm. I have to find out ways to make the, the miserable time maybe less miserable. So maybe for some people that means indulging in certain vices. Um, so... <laughs> 
like I spent some of my youth in Wisconsin too, and there's a lot of alcoholism there, not, not in my family or anything, just in general. Mm -hmm. It's good. Well, if, if you're living this far north where it's cold and miserable for much of the year, you got to turn to something. Um, <laughs> so maybe like the existential philosophy for me was like um, alcohol for any of us in these northern latitudes. Um, <laughs> where it's not, it's maybe not necessarily good for me, but at least there's some commiseration here. Um, uh, even if I don't truly understand the philosophy between, uh, behind Sartre and the idea of hell being other people, at least there's some kind of like, at least I can be like, yeah, hell is other people. <laughs> feel good in my kind of resentment of others. Um, and so much of the, I think, when I'm referring to existential philosophy and kind of referring to those early existentialists who were trying to deal with their misery um, and all of them trying to basically answer the fundamental question, why, why should I keep living? What's, what's the point? Mm -hmm. um, and it's a dangerous question to ask because um, especially in our kind of, hyper-aware self-help society. Um, when you ask a question like that, the, the, the gut response a lot of people have is, are you okay? Should you be on medication? <laughs> like, no, no, I'm, I'm kind of asking, like, why would I even want to take medication? And that's a philosophical question. Mm -hmm. um, and so for a while, the, these thinkers were kind of commiserators in a way. But I saw it, it didn't seem sustainable to me um, to always be in that persistent state of um, resentment or that persistent state of this is my burden. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, I, and that was the reason I got into philosophy too in the first place was not because I had these academic ambitions, was, it was because I had these fundamental questions that I wanted answers to, or at least I wanted to know if I'm asking the right questions in the first place. So who better to turn to than other people asking the same questions? Mm -hmm. And it seemed like existentialists were asking the same questions I was. Um, and, and some got really close to, here's how you can get past the miserable side of existence. Um, you get a little bit of that with... Um, Quick aside. The piece that Ben's trying to reference here in particular is Albert Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus, which is essentially a treatise on dealing with how absurd life is or the absurdity of life. Um, it's actually one of the first things that I ever read, like a proper philosophical work, and it's really, really good, and you should definitely read it. Anyway. So, so you get, you get part of, you can get past misery a little bit by reading these kind of, now these kind of dogmatic existential texts like um, Camus and the myth of Sisyphus where, all right, well, this is his burden, but um, maybe just by accepting it, accepting the fact that you're always gonna be pushing the boulder up this hill and just knowing that that is all there is, maybe that there's some kind of, traction you can make there to get out of your total kind of miserable existential despair mm -hmm. but that's I, I and i still don't i don't think that's still sustainable all the way one of the writers i read who he's a poet um rainia uh maria rilke um i'm sure i'm completely messing up the pronunciation there but in any case his poetry and his work has at least kind of in the chronology of things is sometimes associated with some existential thinking um, or at least some of his ideas could be considered existential and one of the books that stood out to me at that kind of transitional stage in my own existential philosophical narrative was in letters to a young poet where there was a, a young poet a soldier um, who was writing these letters to Rilke, basically just asking him life's questions mm -hmm. and, and looking for answers. And they weren't exactly the same kind of questions I was asking, but it was more like, oh, well, this, this, the person writing to the poet seems to at least be bothered by the same things that are bothering me. What's, what's the point? What, what, what's love? What's, you know, all these kind of 
basic philosophical questions. And Rilke has a line to the young poet who just asked a whole bunch of questions. Um, and this is kind of a paraphrase, but he says, live the questions now. And that's become kind of a maxim for me as well. That the kind of misery of existentialism is you have these questions and you're not going to have the answers. And so you can choose to be disappointed by that. Or you can see that it doesn't really matter what the answers are. Asking the questions is, is the answer. Mm -hmm. It becomes this kind of um, Taoist philosophy that you kind of step into the river or step into the way of things. Um, and if all there are is questions, it doesn't mean that the questions are meaningless. And it also doesn't mean that the answers don't exist. It just means that the minute you think you've arrived at an answer for something, all you've done is introduce a new set of questions. And that's not reason for hopelessness. That's, I think, reason for excitement. I think that's reason to continue to be motivated mm -hmm. to, to live and understand more and experience more. Um, and going back to what I said earlier, to walk around more. Mm. Um, that you don't need the answers and you don't need to be depressed that you, don't, you won't have answers because maybe your desire to want to have answers is a juvenile desire in the first place. Sometimes it's just better to, to be. Um, and, and I think that's why I've, I've come around to really enjoying thinking about communications professionally because at least in this context, I'm able to get some answers or yeah. Whatever. You know, you're not answering life's questions, but at least you are applying the same kind of urges of critical thinking and curiosity um, in, a, in, a, in a smaller context. And um, I, I think that's what I mean when I say recovering existentialist is I've kind of grown past the misery side of it and come to embrace the... Um, <laughs> Every, every new day is a miracle. It's not actually like what I'm saying, but <laughs> <laughs> live, laugh, love. <laughs> um, it's, I find it funny that you've got, I, well, actually, I find it nice. You refer to your 18-year-old self probably thinking, oh, Ben's such a sellout now. And you also, uh, now Ben, present Ben also goes, it's a bit juvenile, wasn't it? Eighteen-year-old yeah. Ben, kind of get over it, get over yourself. Yeah. You're fine. Um, so you're also um, teaching part-time at university. So mm -hmm. you're teaching lots of different, I assume, eighteen to twenty-one-year-olds who are probably mm -hmm. fighting with a whole bunch of things like that. How do you? Mm -hmm. What do you do? What do you teach them? What do you? Um, what do you tell them? That's a good question. And I was talking about this earlier this week um, with with a colleague of mine the way I got into teaching wasn't because I sought it out. It was because the, the opportunity came up for me and I never, sorry, I'm, I'm collecting my thoughts here. I never sought to be a teacher um, or an educator. The opportunity kind of came came to me. Um, I was close with the um, chair of the department at the university. They had a class in public relations. He had watched my career um, and some of the work I'd done, but because he also knew the work I had done academically, they were looking for somebody who understood both the theory and kind of the practice of communications um, in equal measure. So he said, you would be great for teaching this. We haven't been able to offer this class for four or five years because we, we just can't find the right person. So wow. why don't you give it a try? And that was now three plus years ago um, right. for as long as I've been teaching the class. And part of the reason I said yes to it was because I would have, relatively speaking, full autonomy. Um, it hadn't been offered for several years. So the old curriculum, the old syllabus, the old textbook was all out of date. So part of the deal was if you want to teach this class, you can make it your own. And when I graduated or finished 
my undergraduate degrees in 2009, one of my biggest resentments after graduation was I felt totally unprepared for the world. Even just having somebody say everything you're doing in school, nobody cares about when you're out of school. Nobody said that. And so it was like a harsh awakening when I came out of school and I thought I had a great portfolio, but it was like, it's all student work in. (laughs) It's not real real person work no (laughs) but but it had been sold to me and all other students as being so important um Mm -hmm. and so it was kind of a rude awakening well they make it seem so important as well if you don't do this we're going to chuck you out yeah (laughs) um or yeah if you if you don't (laughs) if you have seven pages instead of eight you're going to fail this class or what like i don't know all this kind of fear tactics to get you to write papers that are read by your professor and that's it (laughs) Um, but it's it's because a lot of these professors uh, especially at the time that's the only world they had ever known they had never had to actually go look for a job or interview um, outside of an academic setting Um, and maybe they had a retail job once when they were 15 years old but had otherwise only ever been in school and so I was really excited about the teaching opportunity because I could go and I could talk about the kind of theory and history of um, public relations and communications, but also what I hoped uh, would be the case that I could speak <laughs> speak some truth about the world, and um, and so that's been that's been my approach. So we can talk about public relations and talk about all the kind of theoretical stuff, but also let's let's look at all of you in this class. Eighty percent of you in this class don't want a career in public relations or marketing or communications at all or you're just totally bored even when i say a (laughs) sentence like that you've already tuned me out and i get that and Mm -hmm. and i say i say essentially that to my student too and i know this doesn't interest all of you it shouldn't frankly um the the school where i teach isn't a feeder for these industries anyway so most of the students are there because they're fulfilling um, their kind of credit requirements and there's all, but there's always a handful who's truly interested. And in any case, they, that's, that's how I design the, the class and the coursework. Okay, if you're doing public relations, you need to know how to write a press release. So here's the mechanics of how to write a press release. But let's not take it so seriously in this class in that you have to get a press release perfect or else you fail the class. That's not what it's about. It's if you wanna do PR, here's how you write a press release. If you don't want to do PR, here's how writing a press release and understanding how a press release gets written will help you in whatever else you do. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how I focus on the kind of practical stuff. But because I get to bring the theoretical side as well, that's also where I'm able to introduce philosophical ideas that I think aren't typically introduced in any other public relations setting or format. Ethics are a huge part of the conversation. So we get to spend a lot of time talking about ethics um, but also we get, uh, at least I get to introduce some kind of obscure philosophical ideas, at least for this class that isn't really taking any other philosophy courses and talk about um, hermeneutics and truth and method. And I, I quote um, Hans Georg Gadamer in there, and I, I would be willing to bet that there are no other PR professors talking about hermeneutics. Um, but, <laughs> but it, I think it's it's really, at least when I'm talking about that, that idea, it's really what I'm saying is words have meaning and the best kind of communications practitioners or really the best kind of leaders in general are people who understand where words come from, how they evolve, what they mean when they're set at a specific point in time and what they mean when they're interpreted through a different ideology at a separate point in time and how that kind of philosophical understanding can make you a better communicator. Mm-hmm. Uh, not even professionally, just somebody who's a better person in general. So that if I say God and you say God, we, at least we can both admit that we might not be talking about the same thing. Um, and if we can both admit that, maybe that's a more productive conversation than me assuming that we both mean the same thing when we say God. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden my PR course becomes a course in theology and <laughs> words, but... But I think that's how it becomes applicable to people outside of that. And then the other way it plays out, and this is just a little dig at academia, is I give them 
freedom to choose what their final project is. You can do a research paper, um, but <laughs> we all know that research papers that you write as an undergraduate student don't mean anything to anybody. Um, I'll read it and I'll give you a grade on it and that could be your final project. Or you can do a communications plan and what a communications plan is, is it can be for a fictitious entity, it can be for the business you work for, it can be for the business you want to start. And that's all about research and writing messages and thinking about your vision for what you want to accomplish and thinking about the audiences you want to reach. And so all of a sudden you've taken this class and you've gotten some good theoretical understanding that if you want to pursue that, here's some graduate programs and PhD programs you can consider. Um, but at the same time, it's 2020 and a lot of people are just struggling to get by. And so what are ways to kind of give people practical tools and practical guidance that can actually help them um, economically. And because I'm biased towards philosophy, I think having that philosophical understanding can help in that same way. So if I have both the concepts and the skills down, then I can make my own experience like I did with my literary journal. That's so cool. It's one of those the way that I'm seeing how your life has played out is when you go to your end, like at the end of um, your university career, you go to career fairs and they'll be like, oh, philosophy is good for like being a philosopher and being an academic. And also you could do, I don't know, HR, you could do hmm. law or something. And, and you're kind of like, cool. How? And they're like, right. I don't know. I don't <laughs> know. Figure it out. Yeah. Never, never did it. Bye. See right. you later. <laughs> Whereas you're right. kind of like, hi, I've been here. I've done it. Here's my path. Right. Do what you like. Yeah. But also what it shows as well is that you worked hard. Um, for all the listeners of this podcast, um, you should go and look at Ben Van Loon's website and then look at all the publications and look at all the things that you've done because you have been a busy person. <laughs> It's, it's nice when it's, it's seen and it's also because I'm just doing it all the time and I feel like working a lot and I've had to make a lot of sacrifices to like going to graduate school full time and working full time. You have to give up your social life. You have no other choice. Mm -hmm. And it's supposedly like mid twenties is like peak socialization time. And that's where I gave up in order to, to do all of this. It's not mm -hmm. easy. Um, so thanks for the compliment. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like it's like that Venn diagram. It's sorry, my dog just barked there because I stood on her. Sorry. <laughs> so it's like that. Um, uh, you can either have a good social life and a good working life, or you can have like good relationships and um, a good social life, but you can't have like all three of them at the same time. Something's yeah. got to give. Um, but I think that's true of any profession, isn't it? Yeah, well, and you, you might have seen the data, and maybe we can kind of share it as part of this conversation, that people with humanities backgrounds in philosophy, um, over the long term, tend to make more money. Um, not, not because they've gotten these really cushy professor jobs, but because a lot of people who study philosophy have since gone on to other things. And you might not see the returns on that philosophical um, degree or training right away but over the long term especially if you can kind of maintain that those intentions and that mindset i think it does it does pay off over the long term i'm still i would still consider myself early career i'm in my mid-30s my birth my next birthday is in 10 days i'm looking at the date here and uh, <laughs> happy birthday for then <laughs> And so I've, I know that I still have kind of a long future in front of me. So if we were to talk in five years, it'll be a different conversation. But I also, a lot of my peers who I graduated with in both writing and philosophy programs, some of the philosophy people, most of them went on to school. Um, mm -hmm. And like one became a, a pastor or another became a priest. Like they, they kind of <laughs> went that direction. Um, another one founded a brewery, uh, which um, I guess that's you know, cool. That's yeah. kind of monastic too, I guess. Yeah. Um, and but I'll, especially the ones who studied writing, a lot of them just um, it's like they felt like they just wasted their time and, and wasted their money on an undergraduate degree that doesn't apply, and so they kind of just gave up on it. 
um, and they stopped being creative because it didn't pay off right away. Mm-hmm. And it, maybe it just kind of because I'm a stubborn person, but I was just like, I don't want this to happen to me. I don't want to, I spent a lot of money on this. I've gone into debt for this. So I don't want it to be wasted. I want to make it work and show how it can work. And that's become the kind of motivation. That was the initial motivation. But once I kind of felt like I unlocked something, knowing like, oh, I can make philosophy apply. I can make communications apply. I don't have any real estate background at all, but now I'm working for this pretty prestigious real estate association. Mm-hmm. But I think it, it goes back to this kind of curiosity cultivated by studying philosophy. Um, and I still am kind of like occasionally explore, maybe I can go back to school and get a PhD for something, or maybe I get a master's of education in something. Like that urge is still there too to is go it? back. But it, I feel like I might be making more money than some professors. So I'm kind of not rushing <laughs> to go back. Um, I mean, you could still um, write a book or, or you, mm-hmm. I mean, well, a PhD is essentially a book at the end of the day. Yeah. And yeah. if it's well written, then maybe you could sell it. And then, right. and then you could be a very famous philosopher. I don't know. It's a silly yeah. Yeah. Famous philosopher. What is famous that? philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> Who? <laughs> <laughs> No, I think this is a really cool story because when you when you bookend it, you were a punk rocker who went into um, philosophy and um, English, and then you were working at a bike shop. And I feel like a lot of young people at the moment will be in the same position. Like they've gone to uni, they did their best, and now they're working somewhere where they were like, "This is not where I'm supposed to be right now. I yeah. I want to be in the philosophy shop, or yeah. I want to be in the." English language shop but they're not yeah. there and you've just you've, you've you've made the world work for you but you've also made your degree work for the world does that make yeah. sense yeah in in I I think that I, I like to joke that the even the course I teach in public relations is really it's about economic survival it's about survival and maybe that's what philosophy is about too and even the existential um line of questioning why am i alive um that's a survival question yeah um (laughs) in 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 now we're we're on the tail end hopefully of a pandemic that's killed uh, the numbers are just going to grow and i think we'll learn and get a better understanding but let's say by the end of this all millions will have suffered from it um either Mm -hmm. loss of life or all the lives that have been affected by the death of others and the death of opportunities for people and the widening inequality. Um, so in, in this world, survival, it's a real thing. It's not um, a tongue in cheek concept. It's not abstract, um, especially in places like the US where healthcare is in limited quantities and costs people a lot of money. And you can sometimes have the choice between if you like break your leg maybe I can just walk with a limp for the rest of my life or go into bankruptcy in order to walk normal again. What, what are my options? Mm, um, yeah. And so if, but if you can kind of protect yourself economically and career wise, um, that's a way of surviving in the world. And that's also, but how you choose to survive, do you want to step on others to survive or can you survive with your integrity intact and can you survive by helping others? that's a philosophical decision. Um, clearly, maybe this is something that the US and, and the UK have had in common over the past few years. You see people choosing to survive by stepping on others. Um, but we also know that's not sustainable and it causes, it does more harm than good. Um, so in just as much as philosophy is about survival, it's also about how do you be a good person? Mm. And I think that's something anybody can understand and you don't need four years of schooling to understand it, but I guess that doesn't hurt. (laughs) No, definitely not. And it's fun as well. It's well, not even fun. Well, it is fun sometimes. I think sometimes it's comforting. I definitely went into philosophy going from a place of fear. Like I was Mm. like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why I'm here. God doesn't work for me. So I need something else guys. And Mm -hmm. that's how I went into it. Um, 
so yeah, I think it's a really good way of encapsulating philosophy. It is about survival and it is about kind of like figuring it out. It's a place to figure it out. Yeah. As a final, as a final thing, um, people often are like, if you say to, let's say your gran or somebody like that, you're like, oh, I'm going to go and study philosophy at uni or philosophy at college. And they'll be like, what are you going to do with that? Yeah. Um, what's the point in that? Um, having been through all of this and had to hustle and done all of this, was doing a degree in philosophy worth it? I, yes. Um, but you're also talking to somebody double majored. If I were to change anything about my undergraduate decisions, mm -hmm. it would be doing philosophy in something else other than English. <laughs> <laughs> You're too close. So that's the only thing I would change. I, I wouldn't leave that. And I've come across a few people, especially now that I'm editing this journal. Um, I talked to one guy recently who's now kind of econom an economist and researcher, but he studied, um, he studied philosophy. Like it would be great if somebody could study philosophy and something practical, philosophy and finance, philosophy and economics, um, philosophy, and well, I was going to say philosophy and science, but that's, that's a whole other can of worms. I, I don't regret it at all, but explaining that to some people is tough because I studied philosophy because I wanted to understand things better. It, for me, it wasn't about profession at all. It was about um, spiritual exploration, frankly. So, so philosophy was about spiritual exploration, but selling that to people can be tough, um, especially somebody who's like, well, your, your, your mother and father are doctors and lawyers, um, not in my case, but some families who have that kind of careerist pressure explaining mm -hmm. this kind of um, romanticism about philosophy doesn't sell well, but um, if you're taking philosophy to impress others, then you shouldn't be studying philosophy, I don't think. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> Take that, all the weird guys in my philosophy yeah. tutorials. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, we don't have any more time, but it's been absolutely lovely to speak to you, Ben. This is yeah. Thanks uh, for having me. This has been a fun conversation. And, oh, and it's been great. Anybody wants to get in touch, um, I'm very easy to find. There's not a lot of Ben Van Loons in the world, and also mm -hmm. my website is benvanloon.com. So. Yeah. Might I say, it is a fantastic name. I know you didn't choose it, but well done. Oh, <laughs> it's very <thank> good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's got all the, all the right... Um... Ben Van Loon, courtesy of his name, is a very easy man to find. If you want to learn more or even reach out to him, we've popped some links in the description of this episode. Tune in next week when our lovely host Alex and I talk to Dr. Louis de Miranda about creativity what is real, and how Louis has developed a form of therapy using philosophy. It's wild, and I reckon it's worth a listen. You can find more of our content on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have a website, and I think we're getting a TikTok. Whomst knows. See you later. <laughs> <laughs>